Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 14. We're going to get there in just a moment. Luke chapter 14. Um, I'm uh, battling a little bit of the, the sinus cold and all that stuff. I know a lot of you are too. Uh, so we're going to do our best to get through this here today. Uh, I, I feel like I'm kind of in a Theraflu fog, you know what I mean? <laughs> like like all, that, all that medicine in there is kind of just making you a little loopy. I, was, uh, I, I took some Theraflu yesterday, and I was um, uh, downstairs playing Mario Kart with one of my girls, and we were driving Mario Kart, and I fell asleep at the wheel, and I, I crashed. I, I drove off the cliff, and then woke up, like, what in the world? And so um, if I say something really, really good today, um, just know that it's from me. If I say something really, really bad today, just blame the Theraflu, okay? So, so it, could go, it could go either way. Um, Luke chapter 14, we'll be there in just a minute. We're starting a brand new series today. We're calling it Not a Fan. Not a Fan. A lot of the themes, uh, a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the concepts that we're going to speak over these next few weeks are uh, thoughts and concepts that are coming from a book that I recently read from Kyle Eidelman, and it has the same name. The book is titled Not a Fan. And um, as far as a contemporary, just a recently written book, it is one of the most spiritually convicting books that I've read in a long, long time. It, it spoke to me. It, it created something inside of me, a desire to, to be a follower of Jesus, a, a desire to be a completely committed follower of Jesus, a desire to take a step away from just observing on the outside edges. It just creates something in me and it stirs something up in me. And in this book, on, on, on almost every single page, I write the word ouch because it's the Holy Spirit just convicting me. And I hope that over the next couple of weeks that we can really begin to understand the difference as a follower of Jesus between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. And so that's where we're going to go. That's what we're going to do. And hopefully we begin to take those steps to begin to live lives that are completely committed as followers of Jesus. And so that's kind of where we're going here in the next couple of weeks. And so I want to start with kind of this, this illustration. Imagine that uh, you're going out to eat this Friday night and, and you decide to, to go out uh, on a date or go with a couple of friends to the Odyssey downtown, the new restaurant down there. It's real nice. It's kind of it's cool and trendy. And so you walk into the Odyssey and uh, you see me. You see me. I'm over there having an intimate date and, and you can see like the candlelight and I'm all dressed up looking really nice and stuff. And, and you walk over to say hi. But as you're walking over to say hi to me, you realize that I'm on a date with somebody that isn't my wife. So you get upset and, and you, you, know, you kind of address the situation and you say, Pastor, Right, Because that's what you have to say. You have to say it kind of like that when you see your pastor doing something that you don't approve of. You have to say, pastor, right? Who is this lady and what are you doing here? And I, I would look up to you and say, look, this isn't anything that you need to worry about. Okay, I'm on a date with this beautiful lady here tonight, but Melissa knows, she knows that she is my, my first. Melissa knows that she comes first in my life. Melissa knows that I love her most. I'm just here on a date with her tonight. So you walk away, you're, you're kind of upset, and you decide, well, I'm not going to let this go on. And so you decide that it's your duty, your responsibility to call my wife up and let her know what you've seen 
what you've discovered, and, and what you've found out. And so you give her a call, and you let her know what's going on. So when I come home from that date with somebody who isn't my wife, what do you suppose her response is going to be? Do you imagine that she's going to meet me at the door and say, hey, honey, did you have a good time on your date? Then she comes over to me and gives me a big hug and a big kiss and says, you know what, baby? I don't mind that you see other people as long as I'm the most important one to you. How many of you know it wouldn't go down quite that way? And, and I know this. I know this for a fact because um, I had an incident happen in my life. I wasn't dating anybody else, but um, I got a phone call years and years ago when I was the youth pastor, and um, it, it was on our landline at the home, and we didn't have caller ID, and so Melissa answered the phone, and, and uh, they asked for me. And so she handed me the phone, and, and I had a conversation. I was kind of walking around in the other room, and Melissa was kind of listening, and I had a conversation, and then hung out, said goodbye, and, and all of that stuff. And so I walked into where Melissa was, and Melissa said, who was that? I said, it was Dylan. And um, Melissa's response was, no, it wasn't. Who was it? And I said, Dylan, you know, I don't, I don't know. And she said, Chris, why are you lying to me? I said, I'm not lying. I don't know what you're talking about. It was Dylan. She said, when I answered the phone, it was a woman. Who was it? And, and I had no idea what she was talking about. I, I, I don't know. I, I said, Melissa, I don't know if maybe his mom answered because he was too afraid to make a phone call. And then once, you know, I got on the line, like she handed it to him. I don't know. I was talking to Dylan. You know, it was like our own little Jake from State Farm moment, right? <laughs> what are you wearing, Jake from State Farm? Khakis? I don't know. Like... Like it was, and she just, she couldn't understand why I was lying. Why would you lie to me about this? Why are you, I'm, I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, finally we discovered what the problem was. You see, in, in our youth ministry, at that time we had two Dylans in our, in our youth group. Um, one Dylan was a, a junior, senior in high school, and when you talked to him on the phone, he sounded like a man. The other Dylan was a seventh grader, kind of a young seventh grader, and when you talk to him on the phone, he still sounded like his mom, okay? How many of you guys remember when um, you would answer the phone and you were like in that junior high age? And, you know, I, this is how it always happened with me. I'd answer the phone, I'd say, Johnson's. And the person on the other line would be like, Kenya, just the one I wanted to talk to. Like, I'm not Kenya, I'm a dude, right? And, uh, you know, so then you start answering the phone a little bit deeper next time. But, but that's, that was kind of the... the, the issue of the conflict. She thought I was talking about Big Dylan. I was really talking about Little Dylan. And when she answered the phone, she thought it was a woman. And so she was like, you know, I, I'm not saying that she was, had a weapon in her hand, but she was definitely eyeballing them, okay? Like, why are you lying to me? We're, this is about to go down. So I'm pretty sure that if I went out on a date, she wouldn't be cool with it as long as I reassured her that she's my number one. Just, just so you know, you're my number one. You're, you're first on my list. And her response and her refusal to share my affection with some other woman doesn't mean that she's insecure or possessive, does it? Does it? Maybe it does, I don't know. I mean, maybe I've not been preaching good sermons lately. Um, it doesn't prove that she's insecure or possessive. It just proves that she is devoted and she loves me. You see, when I committed my life 
to Melissa in marriage, when, when, when I promised to be her husband and when I asked her to be my wife, I, 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 we made a commitment to each other. And, and I committed to her, not that she would be um, one of many, but that she would be my one and only, right? Not that she would be one of many, not first of many, but that she would be my one and only. And this isn't a, a message on marriage today, but this is, serves as a good illustration for where we're going because when, when, we, when we tell a story like that in this and create a scenario like this, which is fiction, by the way, this didn't happen, I'm just using that as an illustration, um, it, it becomes really easy to understand this. And so when we, when we say it like this in marriage, we say, yes, obviously, 100%, we get it, we know it, but I wonder if it's as obvious when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. So when we think about Jesus this morning, the question that we're going to wrestle through, the question that we're going to consider is, is Jesus one of many or is he your one and only? Is Jesus one of many or is he your one and only? There's a scene in scripture that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus begins to, with painful clarity, identify the difference between a follower of Christ and a fan of Christ. He really begins to, to lay this scenario out and show us really what it looks like to follow Jesus because what we've done, it seems, is we have watered down the commitment to Jesus. We have made it so easy to follow Jesus that it begins to look nothing like what Jesus has called us to. And we begin to celebrate ourselves as fans of Jesus, but Jesus is saying, look, I don't want fans. I don't need fans. I'm not interested in fans. I want followers. I don't want to be one of many. I don't want to be just a part of your life. I want to be the one and only. And so we begin to read this in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. This is what it says. A large crowd was following Jesus. By this time, Jesus' popularity began to grow um, and, and he was developing a lot of fans. And so everywhere Jesus went, there was a large crowd of people following him. Some were kind of like committed to him and others were just kind of watching. And it was really cool to be around Jesus because that's where all the action was. Scripture says, and then he turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And now remember, at the time that Jesus is saying this, and he's telling them to carry their cross and follow him, um, Jesus hadn't died on the cross, and so he hasn't redeemed the cross, and so the cross isn't like this cool spiritual symbol. Like the cross was a, a symbol of Roman torture and the most painful death that you could imagine. And so what he was meaning by this, he, he's, he's meaning that if you are going to follow me, then that means that at a moment's notice, you have to be willing to sacrifice, surrender, and give up everything that you are, everything that you own, everything that you hope to be, including your own life. That's what it takes to follow me. Um, do you remember, if you've seen the, the movie Forrest Gump, you remember in that movie Forrest Gump where there's this, this section of the movie where Forrest begins to run? You guys remember this? 
And Forrest, just one day, he feels like running, so he's going out running, and, and he's just running because he feels like it, but as he runs through all the small towns and the big towns, he begins to inspire people, and so, you know, everybody's asking, why are you running, why are you running, and, and, and they're taking some sort of, like, um, emotional, you know, motivation from it, or spiritual, you know, motivation from it, and, and it's like this great big movement, and every town that Forrest runs through, he, he, his following grows, and reporters are running next to him, and, and he's saying things that turn into like massive things and it's just kind of this funny moment where everybody is running with him and so he's got this group of people behind him and then all of a sudden on one long stretch of highway Forrest Gump he just stops right he stops and he turns around and he faces the crowd and the crowd says shh, shh. he's getting ready to speak he's great you know and they're looking at him as this like the spiritual guru this great man and he says and, and they say quiet quiet he's gonna say something listen shh 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 and Forrest Gump says, I'm pretty tired. I think I'm going to go home now. And then he just walks right through the crowd. And they're looking at him like, that's it? What have I been following you for? I thought you were going to say something life-changing and world-shattering. You're tired? You're going home? And there was this great um, amount of frustration and disappointment because they all like were, what am I supposed to do now? I've just invested all of this time and all this effort and this energy running with you. Now what am I supposed to do? In my mind, I see this scene much the same way. Because think what's happening. Jesus has been kind of walking around the region. He's been inspiring people. He's been connecting with them. He's been um, forming the crowd. He's been doing some amazing, great things. And his, his fandom is growing. His following is growing. And so scripture says he turned around and he speaks to the crowd. And when he turns around, he tells the crowd this. If you want to be my disciple, we just read this, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, your wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus turns around, he says this to the large crowd. And, And we have to remember who he's talking to. Because this sounds like something that Jesus would say to like the 12 disciples. When we talk about disciples, we always think of like the 12, like the inner core, the most important and most powerful disciples. And so we think when Jesus is talking like this, he's talking to them. But the reality is Jesus is talking to the large crowd, the large number of fans that are developing around him. And he says to them, from this point forward, you have to choose. Are you going to remain a fan or are you going to commit to follow? Jesus says, am I going to just be one of many or am I going to be your one and only? And he says this to the entire crowd. He's not just talking to the 12 disciples. He's not just talking to the pastors, right? He's not just talking to ministry leaders. He's not just talking to deacons or life group leaders. He's talking to the large crowd. He's talking to the first-time visitors. He's talking to the people that have maybe been, you know, kind of checking him out for a couple of days. He's talking to everybody, and he's saying, look, no matter who you are, whether you want to be real, real tight, like one of the 12, or whether you just want to be a follower, the cost is everything. You have to love me. You have to commit to me so much You have to go all in with me that by comparison, it looks like you hate everybody else. This must have taken them off guard for sure. 
Ultimately, this wasn't a good way for Jesus to build a bigger crowd, build a bigger following. But he wasn't concerned with the size of his crowd. He was more concerned with the level of commitment in the individual. So in a culture that Jesus was in in that day, if you were to become a follower of Jesus without your family's blessing, it would have been very dishonoring to your family. It would have been very disrespectful. It would have been um, like you were saying, I hate my family. If you were talking to your family and telling them, look, this Jesus guy, I mean, he's awesome. I'm gonna go kind of be about him. I'm gonna go follow him. I'm gonna choose him. And so I'm not going to like step, you know, walk in my father's footsteps. I'm gonna go, you know, walk in Jesus' footsteps. It would have been like you are saying to your dad, to your family, I hate you. You're not good enough. I'm rejecting everything that you are and I'm following Jesus. And before any, any of the, the people there, before any of the fans in the crowd could say, look, Jesus, um, this is a lot. You're asking a lot. Jesus is basically saying, look, I know the cost, and I'm worth it. Jesus is saying, I know what you have to give up, but I'm worth it. Jesus is saying, I know what your family's going to say, but I'm worth it. Jesus says, I know the cultural implications, but I'm worth it. Jesus is saying, I know the financial hit that you're going to take, and I'm worth it. Look, time and time again, we read in the Old Testament, God speaking to the people of Israel, and, and before he pronounces a judgment upon them because of their unfaithfulness, um, uh, he, he, always, he always tells them that they are to serve no other God but him alone. And so we read this over and over again. Um, God is challenging them. And Hosea, uh, uh, he, he really speaks very harshly to them. And, and, and he uses very aggressive terms in their unfaithfulness. And um, he's saying, basically, God is saying, I'm not going to share my affections with Baal. You can't serve me and Baal. God says, I'm not going to share my affections with Chemosh. You can't serve me and Chemosh. Tear down those altars. He says, you can't serve me and Asherah. Tear down those altars. God is saying in the Old Testament, you have to choose me and me alone. I'm not going to be one of many. I have to be your one and only. And when we read the Old Testament and we think of other altars and, and you know, like people sacrificing to other things, we think, yes, I get it. That's easy. Amen. We need to be faithful to God. God needs to be our number one. When God says, I will not share your affections with other gods, we say, yes, that's easy. I get that. But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus essentially says the same thing. Jesus says, I will not share your affections with anybody else. I'm not going to share your affection with your kids. And we're like, wait a second. Let's back up here. They're my kids. Jesus says, I'm not going to share your affection with them. I'm not going to share your affection with your spouse. And we're like, wait a second. <clears throat> now, this is just getting a little ridiculous. I'm not gonna share your affections with your brothers and your sisters. I'm not gonna share your affections with your parents. We're like, hang on a second. That, that's asking too much. That price is a little bit too high. And because we're fans, the majority of us, because we have a difficult time Continuing to follow Jesus, if it costs us anything, if it makes us uncomfortable, if we have to sacrifice anything, we backtrack on this and we say, you know what, Jesus must be meaning something different than what he's saying because this is too much. What I've come to realize, and it's a painful realization in my life, it's not easy to admit, but the truth is that oftentimes I behave more like a fan than a follower. 
I try to convince myself that Jesus is first. I try to convince Jesus, you know, that he is first in my life. Look, Jesus, I read the Bible. Look, Jesus, I, I go to church every Sunday. Look, Jesus, I tithe. Look, Jesus, I do all of this stuff. Look, Jesus, I preach and my throat hurts. That's extra points, amen? I really, really love you. And I try to convince Jesus that he's first, but, but Jesus isn't interested in being first. And, and when I realized this, it just really kind of changed my thought that Jesus isn't interested in being first. He's not interested in sharing your affections. Jesus doesn't want to sit on the top of the shelf. He wants to sit in the throne room. And Jesus just like Melissa is not okay with me saying, look, I'm just dating around, but you're number one. Jesus says, look, there is no number two in your life. There can't be any number two in your life. I don't wanna be one of many. I want to be your one and only, so make a choice. And there will come a point in our lives as fans, when the, which the majority of us are, me included, oftentimes, that Jesus will draw a line in the sand. He'll stop. He'll say, okay, we're gonna stop for a minute. He'll draw a line in the sand and he says, if you are going to remain a fan, this is where your journey ends. If you're gonna remain a fan, this is where your journey ends. But if you're going to commit to be a follower, if you want to be one of my disciples, if you want to keep moving forward, pick up your cross and let's go. Are you a fan or are you a follower? Fans are motivated by a variety of different things. Back in Jesus' day, they were motivated by, by things like free food, right? Because there were several times that Jesus was preaching and the crowds were gathering and they were listening to him. And, and Jesus did this awesome miracle where, where he took five loaves of bread and a few fish and he prayed over it, he blessed it, he multiplied it, he began to hand it out and thousands of people were fed with just a boy's happy meal. And they were like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Jesus has this trick where he prays and he just, he begins to separate and multiply. And, and there was so much food. Jesus gave us so much food that we all had a doggy bag that we were able to take home. It was great. It was awesome. We came, we had empty bellies and we left with full bellies. And look, I got a doggy bag and this is so cool. And we know that story, but what we often forget is that Jesus did that twice. There's a story where Jesus did that for 5,000 people, and then there's another story where Jesus did it with 4,000 people, and essentially did the same thing. One meal, multiplied it, prayed over it, blessed it, broke it, and everybody ate, and there was leftovers again, more doggy bags, and people were like, this is awesome, free food. So they began to follow him. The next time, there was a large crowd gathered around. They were all there with Jesus, and they were like, Jesus, do the food thing. We're hungry. Like, I know you can do that, that one trick where you pray and then you break. Do that, feed us. And Jesus says to them, look, I know why you're here. You're here so that I can feed your bellies, but um, I'm not doing that today. In fact, I have something else for you. Um, I, I'm, I'm offering you my body to eat and my blood to drink. And they're like, what? Like, we're here for the food. And Jesus says, I have something better. If you wanna be a follower, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And they're like, this dude is weird. We're out of here. And when he began to call people to follow, instead of just be fans, they began to leave in mass. They said, nope, don't want any part of this weirdo. We're gone. And then scripture says, Jesus turned to the disciples and said, are you guys going to, the 12 disciples, and says, are you guys gonna leave too? 
Like, are you guys just fans? Are you gonna leave too? And, and they say, where else are we supposed to go? We have nowhere else to go. We're gonna follow you no matter what it takes. So people were motivated by different things. They were motivated by free food. They were motivated by free healthcare, right? Because they'd heard the stories. Man, if I get close enough to Jesus, if I touch him, he will heal my disease. If I holler out to him, he'll pray and, and open my blind eyes. If I can get my friends to, to get me to Jesus, he'll say something. And my legs that have never worked in my life will begin to heal. And, and if I can just get to Jesus and say, pretty, pretty, please, would you heal my throat? My throat will feel better. And, and so all of those things, you know, they're saying, if we can just get close to Jesus, we got free health care. And so everything that they did as fans of Jesus, were, were to be recipients, right? They were saying, give me, give me, give me, free food, free health care. And, and another thing, I think they probably followed Jesus just because it was entertaining. Yes? You think so? I mean, I don't know how they survived without iPhones and Panda Pop, but they must have looked for something to do to keep them entertained. And so I think it would have been pretty cool to follow Jesus. Like, man, I heard the story and, and where, where Jesus spit in the ground and he made a little mud pie and he put it on a guy's eyes. It was the weirdest thing. But when the guy wiped the spit mud off of his eyes, he began to see. It was so cool. And, and to just watch Jesus do all of these things must have been very, very entertaining, I think. To, to see Jesus stand in the temple and, and basically give it to the religious leaders and just let them have it. Like, you know, this verbal fight would have been awesome to watch, right? And so I think there was probably an entertainment aspect that, that caused the groups to follow, to become fans of Jesus. Fans are motivated by a variety of different things. Today, fans are motivated by different things, but it's usually from a consumer mentality. How can this benefit me? in a position to, to receive, 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 receive. Maybe fans are motivated today by a need to belong. Um, you know that there are atheist churches popping up all over? Atheist churches. Sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Um, but they are, they're popping up in America and overseas, just all over the place. Uh, what they do at these atheist churches is, is they, they come together, they sing songs, they take up offerings, um, they, they hear a motivational speech, and then they create opportunities for people to connect in smaller groups. Essentially do everything that a church does minus God. They don't, they don't want anything about God, they just wanna be better people and be friends and all be in community together. And so they have these atheist churches popping up because there is a great need to belong. There are some people in our churches, they're, they are, they're kind of fans of Jesus but not followers of Jesus and they're here because they just need to belong. They just need to belong. And look, there's nothing wrong with needing to belong but if it ends at that consumer, I need to belong mentality, then you will never be able to step across that line to become a follower of Jesus because you're just looking for things to feed you. Maybe we're motivated by a, sol a social or a cultural pressure, not so much today as it was uh, um, a couple decades ago, but, but it's kind of because it's the norm. And so, yeah, we'll just do it because it's the norm. Maybe we're motivated by a hope for something better. Maybe we're motivated uh, to, to find a place to escape from the pain and the heartache. Maybe we're motivated as fans to, to be kind of there in, in, in the building so that we can appease some sort of guilt, some sort of sin guilt. Maybe you're born into it. Mom and dad were a believer, so I guess I am one too, but I don't fully know. Maybe there is an expectation of blessing, but everything that we do as fans is 
motivated from a consumer mentality. Maybe there's a belief that with Jesus, life will just be a little bit easier. That's why oftentimes people will go out and do their own thing, live how they want, but when things get really, really, really bad, what do they do? Come back to Jesus. Maybe Jesus can help. But everything that fans do, we do from a a, a position of how is this going to feed me? How is this going to benefit me? And there will come a point when Jesus draws the line in the sand and says, this is where your fandom ends. I want you to follow. If you're just gonna remain a fan, this is where you stop. But I want you to follow. I want you to follow. And then he offers a word of caution, verse 28. He says, I want you to follow, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Verse 31, or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. Verse 33, listen to this. Jesus says, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. And he doesn't just say this to the 12. He doesn't just say this to future pastors. He says this to the masses, to the crowd. He says, this is the cost. This is what I'm calling you to. I want you to follow me. I want you to commit to me. I want you to be my disciples, but I'm not gonna settle for being one of many. I have to be your one and only. He says, but before you make this decision, before you cross this line, You need to count the cost. And we can't assume that just because salvation is free, following is free. We can't assume that because that's not what Jesus says. Fandom is free, but following costs much. And Jesus says, don't begin, don't cross this line, don't commit to follow me unless you know what it entails. Before you make this decision, I want you to know that it's going to cost you everything. You're gonna have to give up everything. You're gonna have to be willing to sacrifice everything, lay down everything for me. And we don't often preach this way because this message doesn't preach well, yes? I mean, there's not a lot of amens here, and I get that. It, it It doesn't preach well. This message doesn't fill up empty seats. And can I tell you, pastors love crowds. We do. But these kind of messages, they don't fill empty seats. In fact, oftentimes they create more empty seats. But this is what Jesus is saying. Count the cost. Count the cost. Those of you who are married, remember when you were thinking about getting married? Remember when you were thinking, man, maybe he's going to ask me to marry him? Remember when you were thinking like, hey, I I think this is the one I'm going to ask her to marry me? Remember um, how much time you committed to uh, counting the cost? Maybe you wrote out a pros and cons list. Maybe you were thinking like what all she has to offer, what all he has to offer. Maybe you were asking yourselves these questions. Is he a good person? Does he have a job? That's, That's a good one. Does he love his mama? Does he love his mama too much? Because that can also be an issue, right? How does he treat me? How does he treat me when his friends are around? Will he be a good dad? What will he look like in 20 years when he starts going bald? Like, am I still cool with that, right? Does he love Jesus? 
Does he love me? Will he be faithful? And you begin to think through these things. You begin to count the cost. And in and, and that decision, who you're going to marry, isn't a sure, why not, what have I got to lose sort of thing. Like, it's a big decision. So you spend a considerable amount of time thinking what it's going to cost. In fact, marriage is the most important decision that you're going to make in your life, second only to your decision to follow Jesus. Yet, when we decide to follow Jesus, we often say, hey, I'm going to commit my life to Jesus. Why not? What's it going to hurt? But Jesus says, count the cost. Count the cost. Count the cost. Jesus never says when it comes to following him, hey, just give it a shot. What do you got to lose? Jesus says, hey, wait a second. Before you cross the line from a fan to a follower, know what you're giving up. Know what it's going to cost you. Know what you're getting yourself into because Jesus never sugarcoats it. Jesus doesn't bury this part of discipleship deep into the contract. It's not like when you're buying a vehicle and you say, okay, $10,000, I'm gonna buy it for $10,000. Then you get like the final bill, like you, you okay, I need a check for 13,000. And you're like, what, or, or 1,300? Like, what, what, where did all this extra money come from? Well, you got a financing charge, you got a filing fee, you got a processing fee, all this other stuff is in there, it's just part of the deal. And I remember when we were doing that, and we said, what is this $100 filing charge here? What does that mean? Well, we have to print out the receipt, and I have to hand it to somebody in another department. They have to file it in their filing cabinet. For $100, are you kidding? me and, and they, they put all of these secret extra hidden charges in there you know they get you on the back end we hate that Jesus is saying look there's a price to follow and I'm not going to bury any of this stuff deep in the contract it's not the fine print anywhere Jesus doesn't get you to sign up because salvation is free and then say, oh, by the way, this is what it is. Jesus says from the very beginning, it's going to cost you everything. And I don't know what has happened to us as, as preachers. I don't know what has happened to us as Christians where we feel like we have to sugarcoat something that Jesus didn't. He says, this is the sticker price. There is no hidden fees. It's going to cost you everything. Salvation is free. Followership is going to cost you everything. So people come to Jesus. They say, what's the cost? What's the cost of following Jesus? And the question is always, well, are you going to follow him as a fan? Or are you going to follow him as a fully committed follower? Because it's two different things. If you follow him as a fan, it doesn't cost you anything. You just follow him as long as it's convenient for you and it's working out for you and it makes your life easier. But if you are going to be a follower, it's going to cost you everything. What do you mean like everything? Like all of my sins? Yeah, all of your sins, plus all of your hopes, all of your dreams, um, all of your relationships. It's going to be a complete, full sacrifice and surrender. That doesn't mean we abandon all of our relationships. That just means that Jesus sits in the throne room of our lives. That Jesus is our one and only, not one of many. That Jesus isn't first. He is the only one. It's going to cost you everything. Fans will say the cost is too high. Followers say Jesus is worth it. Fans will say I love you. I'm committed to you. But let's not be exclusive. Followers say you Jesus and you alone. Stand your feet all across this place. We're getting ready to close. So the question that we're going to end with this morning is the same question we started with. Is Jesus one of many or is he your one and only? Is he one of many or is he your one and only? 
We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to connect with us, or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com.